It is now time for the leader to qualify. Please. Okay. Hey, my name is Albert. I'm a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Lauren, for asking me to speak. Um, it's been just over a year and a half since I've led at this meeting, and I don't speak that often at meetings. And to be honest, lately I haven't shared all that much. Um, qualify, I came into the room almost six years ago. Um, my highest weight is somewhere around 350 pounds. I don't weigh myself today. I don't want to know what the scale does. Um, and one day at a time, I practice this program imperfectly. Um, I'll start with I'll, I'll start with my story and, and hopefully get into more of um, how I work this program. Um, I like to talk about hitting rock bottom because I, I love that in some of the introductions, I don't know where it is in our reading, but it says that it's our weakness, not our strength that binds us. So I like to focus on my, on my story because I feel like that's where we all really connect. Um, and I love step one because step one is that we admitted we were powerless and that our lives are unmanageable not I am powerless and I know that we work the set saying I but I feel that when we speak vulnerably and offer our story to the rooms it becomes our story it's not my story um, and at any time we can choose the story that we want to live in and we can choose one of recovery or we can choose one of struggling and suffering um, and I hope you all choose recovery and um, let's see, let's start off. So I was, um, I don't know if I was born a compulsive overeater, I was born a chubby baby and never changed. Um, I did use food to numb loneliness. I recently started thinking about my brother being born just a year after I was born and I started to wonder if maybe my mom held him more than she held me and maybe she gave me food while she held him uh, which would explain this deep need for wanting to be held and at the same time not wanting to be touched um, I suffered my entire life from loneliness and Food is the way that I cope through um, not feeling like I fit in, not feeling like I belong. Um, when I was a kid, I would wait for my parents to come home, and and I've said a lot of this before, so um, sorry to those of you that have heard this before. Um, I'd wait for my parents to come home, and I'd stand outside, and I'd, I'd watch the, the headlights of cars coming, and as a young kid, I was able to tell you what car was coming down the street by the shape of the headlights. Um, and when I'd see their car coming down the street, I'd run into the house and pretend like I was just behaving and, and not doing anything in the house. So, um, And I would just wait. I would wait for my parents' acknowledgement, and usually that didn't come. Um, 
on days where they'd show up really late. I, um, there were times when I wanted to surprise my parents by baking a cake, and I would bake this cake, and I couldn't wait for them to get home, and I'd start eating it, and I'd get through half of it and then have to hide it, and only for my mom to figure out that um, she can totally tell I wasn't good at hiding evidence at all. Um, she used to threaten that she was going to lock the refrigerator. Um, she never did, and it seemed like she would go grocery shopping, two weeks worth of grocery shopping, and it would all be gone in, in a couple of days. Um, I was in sports when I was a kid, so the older I got, the, the better I was able at masking my, my problems with food. I played water polo in high school. Um, I was an all-American water polo player. By the time I finished high school, I, um, <clears throat> I was in the pool for about six hours a day every day, um, so I could mask my binging. <clears throat> um, following that, I went into the Marines, and I thought that they were going to help me to manage my weight. Um, part of my going in was this idea of of who I would be in the uniform and I had this image of how I would be perceived and I think that I, I always wanted to be perceived as someone who was special or strong or confident and I didn't have any of that um, so fast forward um, I was playing water polo in high school uh, in college and I, I was uh, lifeguarding in the summertime and um, I was headed to, to work one morning and I got into a really bad motorcycle accident. I should have died in that motorcycle accident. Absolutely everything about that morning was a miracle. Um, long story short, I ended up discovering uh, that painkillers and alcohol together was a great way to just sleep through every bit of pain that I had during my recovery. And eventually it turned into my tool for managing my loneliness, my stress, um, any emotion that I had, that was one of my tools. And when I wasn't using that, then I was using food. Um, food is my primary issue, that's why I'm here. Um, loneliness and depression really had me. Um, when I was a lot younger, uh, a fr my friend who was in the Marine Corps asked me to hold his pistol because his wife didn't want a gun in the home. And I used to hold it underneath my head and pull the trigger and pray for God to give me the willingness to take my own life and or give me the courage to load the gun. And I thought that the next time I pulled the trigger, when God gave me the courage, then my suffering would end. And I lived a very long time with suicidal ideation. Um, and the cure to it all the time, most of the time, uh, was food. The God one night gave me the courage to load the pistol and instead of, um, in, instead of, you know, playing that game, I left the house and with $17 in my pocket, I went to go get my binge food. And instead of getting my binge food, I saw a prostitute. 
and I offered her $17 so that she can hold me and tell me that it was going to be okay. And she did. And that was another way that I learned that I didn't have to be alone, was that I can just turn to somebody and pay them to show me that they cared, to show me that I was, that I was alive. And, and it got to that level of loneliness where I needed to feel somebody else breathing next to me so that I knew that I was alive. Um, the depression, my depression worsened. Um, when I was young, I snapped out of it and jumped into a career um, in the casino business, of all things. And I was very successful in that industry, um, but we operated 24-7. 365 days a year and I can go from client site to client site and binge. Uh, I was comped all of my meals. I was on the Atkins diet, eating prime ribs three times a day and gaining weight and wondering why it's not working. Um, yeah. I was about 200 pounds when I went into the casino business. Um, and when I left, I was close to 350 pounds. Um, I left because I wanted to pursue my compulsive overeating full-time. I was not a functioning addict. At the same time, I was in graduate school earning a doctorate in an area of psychology, um, which I had thought by that time that it was all bullshit because no matter what I knew, nothing that I could Nothing that I could apply to my life was working. Absolutely nothing. And I spiraled out of control. The closer I got to earning my doctorate, the worse things got because I couldn't figure it out. And it made me feel more and more alone. And I, I thought that there was no way out of this. My depression worsened and, um, and I hit rock bottom. Really hit rock bottom. The happiest day of my life was the day that I decided I was going to kill myself. And I got everything that I needed to get myself through the week. And I was so happy because I knew that a week from the day that I made that decision, the pain was going to end. And I had completely changed. Um, I went from being a shut-in, leading the casino business and being a full-time compulsive overeater and addict um, I lived as a shut-in for three and a half years. I um, had blankets over the mirrors and over the windows in my house. It was pitch black all the time. Um, there were days when the only thing that I had to do was get up and take a shower. That's it. Just get up and take a shower, and I couldn't do it. Um, I pushed away friends and family. I was completely and, and totally alone. So the suffering had gotten so bad that knowing that the pain was going to end was my only salvation. It gave me so much joy. Um, and the week that I thought would be my last, I said my goodbyes to my family. I was a completely different person around them. And I went out to Arizona to be with my, um, my only friend and his family. And it was Saturday night, and his family had gone to bed. Monday morning, I would, I would leave to Las Vegas and kill myself. Um, is that halfway? Wow, okay, I'm going to speed through this. 
um, my brother, my phone was ringing from across the room. I ran, I got up so that it wouldn't wake the kids, my best friend's kids. And um, I picked up the phone, and it was my brother. And my brother said, I just asked Adrian to marry me. Will you be my best man? And I cried that whole night because I couldn't go through with my plan. And I didn't know how the hell I was going to get to his wedding. I just, I didn't, how I was living, I had no idea how I was going to make it to the wedding. So, instead of going to Vegas, I came home and I found a therapist and that therapist got me into programs and first, the first meeting that I walked into I was completely blown away by the speaker who was sharing as vulnerable as I had ever seen anyone share before and she was telling my story and, and that was the first time in my life where I felt like I wasn't alone. Um, that was sometime in August, almost six years ago. On October 25th is the day that I decided to start counting my abstinence because that was the day that my brother got married. And that was the day that I decided that I was going to do this for myself. So. I like to say that I didn't kill myself for my brother. I came into program for my therapist. I got so I got abstinent for my sponsor, and my abstinence though I start counting it because that is the most important thing to me in my life today. Um, I have a sponsor. I am a sponsor. Um, can I say about how I work this program in the short amount of time that I have left? Um, when I was a newcomer, I went to one to two meetings a day every day for probably the first two or three years. I owe my life to the people in this, in this room, in these rooms. Um, I remember just about everybody in my first meeting. Um, which is crazy to me. I can tell you where people were sitting. Um, I walked in and and I felt terrified and humiliated. And these two guys who I only seen the one time said hello to me. And they welcomed me. And it felt so amazing to not be invisible. Um, to the left of me, Ryan was sitting. And at the end of the meeting, for those of you those of you that know Ryan, he started talking to me and he introduced me to Laura and my life has never been the same. Um, I have an amazing life filled with problems, like amazing problems. <laughs> like, have like, People complain about dating, and now I can complain about dating. It's horrible. <laughs> There's nothing fun about it. But I get to show up. And you know what's great about it? How charming I find myself during the date. That's what's weird. It's 
I'm like, wow, I'm an awesome guy. And they never see it, and that's okay. When I came into this program, I was unlovable. I, I believed myself to be completely and totally unlovable. I surrendered any hope that anyone would ever find me attractive enough to want to be with me. I, it, wasn't in, it wasn't a thought that I even had anymore. Um, I came into the room and I was the most non-threatening. I just didn't want to be invisible and I didn't want to take advantage of anyone and I didn't want to scare anyone away. I just, I just, I just desperately wanted to be seen and I desperately wanted to feel safe. And that's what I got when I came into the room. And when I had that safety, I was able to let go of my need to eat compulsively. Um, I want to talk a little bit about my higher power. Because my higher power has evolved to be a lot of different things while I've been in the room. Um, And lately, the metaphor that I've used for about the last year, maybe year and a half, is this, um, this idea that I was, I was just watching this stuff online because I really love astronomy. Um, and I don't know if I've ever said this before, but um, years ago, uh, NASA decided to point the Hubble telescope at this area of sky where scientists said, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, you're wasting time. Um, and they pointed it at a piece of sky that's no bigger than a grain of sand at arm's length this tiny piece of sky Um, and after six days photons that had been traveling for like 600 billion years uh, started to come to light and after 10 days what was um, what became clearer were 3500 galaxies each with millions of stars in them and that is God to me God is that tiniest little thing inside of me where I believe there's nothing there, there's nothing there. And the longer I focus on it, what's come to light is a level of compassion, love, forgiveness, things that I didn't think were possible in me. Um, four minutes. Um, and I'm constantly surprised at the man that I'm becoming. Um, I didn't know that any of this was possible without binging my way through. And I'm far from perfect and I'm far from, you know, I'm so full of new character defects. But I know that they're there and one day at a time I work through, I work through the issues that so many people who I you know, I didn't feel human for so many years, so for so many years I disregarded every human need that that I could have. Um, not feeling worthy of love denied me of any opportunity to connect intimately um, with women. And I didn't believe that I was deserving of that, so I didn't question it. And now that I believe that I'm lovable and I believe that I can be in a healthy, happy relationship. 
I have all the character defects of someone who's very frustrated and not knowing how the hell are you supposed to ask them now? Like, really, like, how the hell do you do that? Um, I know how to do a pizza in isolation. <laughs> I don't know, like, the ins and outs of life. And the beauty of, of it is that I don't have to know that somehow, by some miracle, God has made things possible for me without me trying. Um, that today that I have a career that I absolutely love, and it wasn't the thing that I ever thought that I would be doing with my life, but I get to live a life of service to others. And I got out and I started saying, this is what I want to do. And by some miracle, somebody called me and said, hey, I want to hire somebody. Are you interested? Completely out of the blue. And it's been sort of my journey in program that everything that I focus on, that I move toward, I don't get that stuff. I get the stuff that God just surprises me with. Um, it's never what I planned. It's not what it's supposed to look like. It's more than anything that I could have ever imagined. And if you would have told me almost six years ago that the key to connecting with God and finding safety, love, and connection with other people, that the key was to just put down the food, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, and one day at a time, one day at a time, God is showing me more than anything that I thought was possible. So I'll end there and then we can, I guess, go to questions. Thank you. Okay, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Okay, who has a question? Robin? I came into program, I think, with a lot of, of unresolved anger because there are resentments that I don't want to let go of. And I started, I started a practice of forgiveness, a daily practice of forgiveness, as often as I can remember to practice this. Um, but a practice of forgiveness for me, which has helped to alleviate the resentments that I have, are to, when I'm sitting in traffic, and I sit in a lot of traffic, I practice forgiveness for the people around me. I'll look into the cars of people driving next to me and I imagine what their lives are like. I imagine the struggles that other people go through. Um, and in doing that, 
it helps me to cultivate a level of, of compassion and understanding that I didn't have before. And over time, the resentments that I thought I would never let go of, and I had some that I would never, I never, never imagined myself letting go of certain resentments. And while I still have some hate towards some of the people that have hurt me in my life, I've, I've truly learned to forgive people by, by cultivating a skill set. And I, I do believe that forgiveness is, is a skill. It's something that we need to practice. And um, I used to have a lot of anger at my parents. One of the, the tools that I used to resolve a lot of my resentments toward them was to picture them as kids. When I, vis- when I visit them, I picture them as kids. Um, you hear in the rooms that we learn to parent ourselves. I feel if, I w- if I'm going to be the man that I want to be, the husband, the father that I hope to be one day, that I need to learn to parent my parents. The little kid in them that that desperately needs to be seen and heard and to feel safe. So there's that and I also, um, I had pictures of my parents carrying me as a baby and I learned to love that person. That nobody holds their baby and thinks, I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck you up, you know? Nobody does that. So when I picture my parents holding me, I forgive them for every way that they fell short of their own expectations. Not of my expectations, because their expectations were so high that they broke themselves against it. And because of that, they fell short of who I wanted them to be. And that has helped me to learn to love and forgive on a level that I just wasn't capable of um, at any time in my life. So. Yes. Um, my abstinence has evolved. When I was a newcomer, my abstinence was three meals a day. And when my sponsor said three meals a day, I'm like, no, that's not possible. Nutritionists say to eat six or seven times a day. And uh, so I listened to what he said, and somebody said to me, um, three meals a day, whatever fits on a plate. And a jar of peanut butter and a box of Oreos fits on a plate. <laughs> but I learned not to mess with my, my rules around that. So my abstinence has over time become very structured and very well defined. It's whatever fits comfortably on, on one plate. Uh, comfortably is still like a gray area for me. But unless I'm at a restaurant and in which case I can have like a salad, a meal, and if there's a dessert. Um, and when I'm in public, I, I kind of don't, you know, I don't go crazy in public. My, my eating issues are, are a thing that I like to do alone. Um, I don't eat at fast food. Fast food is anything that has a drive-through. Um, there's a couple of exceptions to that, that rule. Um, and what I can eat at those places, I have mapped out. Um, there are certain things that I can have when I go into like a convenience store. So there's no, 
I'm not going to say there's no browsing because I do like to walk up and down and just look at food. <laughs> and I do that. Like, I just can't, I can't not look. Like, I want to know what's cookie butter. Like, I see that at Trader Joe's. And what is that? That sounds awesome. But I look and that's it. It's not part of my abstinence. So I kind of just stay away from anything, you know. Yeah. 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 My, I'm, most of my shame is around feeling like a failure in my life. When it comes to my, my weight is an easy thing to point to, but my shame is is sort of a byproduct of the expectation that I hold for myself. And whenever I reach that expectation, I just raise the bar. I always keep who I think I should be just out of my reach so I can constantly feel this sense of shame. And what's changed is that I keep the bar at a certain place and I really, I, I allow myself an opportunity to like look at myself in a different way to be proud of myself um, it's not that's not perfect I have a really hard time with it and I I feel my shame has kept me out of relationships not feeling good enough or worthy enough has kept me out of everything good that God puts in front of me and slowly, over a lot of time, um, I've allowed myself good things to come into my life. And to the best of my ability, I don't mess up anything that comes into my life. Because I, I, I do it over and over and over. Well into, into program, I will, you know, I, I will just destroy relationships. And, and it's all because I feel ashamed of, of who I am. Um, and again, it goes to cultivating a sense of forgiveness for myself and, and learning to not beat myself up for not being the person that I believe I'm, I'm supposed to be. And um, I found a level of, of self-acceptance that is, it's, I'm, I'm beyond where I think I, I should have been um, or what I thought I should be. And... I still find a way to beat myself up, but one day at a time, I I learn to put down the stick and and try to you know practice self love. Yeah. You still get urges to overeat, and so deal I just don't. But yes, every day, every day I want to overeat, and I just don't do it. And. Sometimes it's white knuckling it. Sometimes it's it's like a it's like a scary movie, right? Like you hear a noise and I don't follow it. I get the fuck out of the house, right? <laughs> I'm in that movie. So if there's good food in the house and like you know something's happening in my head, I have to get out of the house. And isolation is my killer. So. Nine out of ten times, if I'm 
contemplating an, uh, a binge or planning something, uh, I have to get out of the house. And it happened yesterday. Within my, within my abstinence, my brother brought something into the house and he left for the day and I thought, it's free game, you know, I can, I can have his stuff. And I started like taking out a portion that would fit into my abstinence and I had to get out of the house. I had to put it away and just leave and that's what I did. And one, one day at a time, one day at a time, um, I have to fight that urge and it does happen and it happens a lot and, and, and again I get into forgiveness like it's, it's just a symptom of loneliness and yeah the quickest way out of it is to just just keep walking God's path yeah. um, along that same line uh, when that loneliness pain you know, coming in I should mention that so this is the part that um, I still struggle with a lot because um, the holiday rolls around and I can say I have no plans and nobody invited me but that's not true um, went to a meeting instead of doing things with friends um, I have a thing that I should go to today with friends and there's a part of me that doesn't want to but Today, I get to practice uh, contrary action. But loneliness for me feels like hunger, right? That I can eat, and if I'm still hungry right after, then I know that that hunger is loneliness. So I pray my way through it. You know, I'm ashamed to say sometimes I take a nap through it. I'll go to the movies and the theater will be kind of empty and I'll kind of sit close to some people so I just kind of feel like I'm not completely alone even though it's annoying as hell when I want to isolate and somebody sits kind of close to me. <laughs> like the theater's empty, really? Like you got to sit right there? <laughs> but I do it and um, I pray and the the more recovery I have, I have to say, the harder it is to connect with fellows. I feel afraid to pick up the phone, um, more so than I've ever felt in since being in recovery. So much so that I think a couple, about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now, I added to my abstinence um, no screening phone calls and not returning them. So. I have a rule that if, if I'm doing nothing at home and someone calls and I look at the phone and I'm like, oh, hell no, I don't want to talk to them. I have to return that call by the next day or I lose my abstinence. And I've never felt unhappy after an outreach call. Never. Well, a couple of times when somebody gave, was like giving me some hardcore unsolicited advice. And there's, so there's one exception to that rule. There's one fellow in program that I won't take her outreach calls because I get lectured. And I don't, I need to feel safe. So I draw that boundary for myself. But everyone, and I'll, I'm like really cool at meetings. I say hi and I, I talk a lot to her. But I just don't pick up the call, those calls. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Albert. I really appreciate that.
You know, I I wouldn't characterize anything as depression anymore because it was so severe. Um, it was so severe that someone said last night that um, they they said it. It's in the big book that my best days in my best days in my disease are nowhere near my worst days in my recovery. So. My best days in my disease, my absolute best day, my favorite day was like, there's good TV on, an, a large pizza, some painkillers and alcohol. And as I'm like passing out into the pizza, like I'm like trying to finish it. And that feeling of passing out while I have all this food in front of me, amazing. I love it. It's like the greatest Saturday night ever. But that is not even close to my worst days in recovery. My worst days in recovery are I get to feel the loneliness. I get to feel, you know, I get to feel my fear. I get to feel a lot of things that I just didn't get to have when I was in my disease. So I don't have depression because I have a connection to my higher power and my fellows. So it's just not as bad. Laura? Albert, thank you for sharing. Can you work with us nine of them and then you have what your experience Oh, and yes. Um, I keep making it up to certain steps and then starting all over. And the last time, now I'm back up to step eight and procrastinating so and it's not so much I I like to say I don't work the steps the steps work me and at this place where I don't feel deserving of forgiveness and I understand that that's part of my disconnection from others is that not feeling deserving of forgiveness um, is the barrier that keeps me from really connecting with other people. So while I've worked 9 and 10 in a couple of other programs, 9 and 10 haven't worked me in a way, which is why I find myself stuck in some areas of my life. So with some shame I can say that, you know, I feel a little like a fraud having not gone through all the steps in this program and at the same time I feel really good allowing for my higher power to facilitate how and when my steps are worked because you know I went through grad school I got my doctorate I'm like a really smart guy I can sit down and work the steps like they were homework I've done them I've done that in other programs in this program this program for me is the, the most raw, the most vulnerable, the most open and honest that I have to be. That the rigorous honesty that I work in this program um, keeps me from pushing myself harder than, than what God is willing to walk me through, if that makes any sense. But I am through my step eight 
and praying for the willingness to be accepting of forgiveness that others may or may not have for me. And I don't know if I'm ready to find out whether or not I'm forgiven. Is that my time? Sorry, Terrell. <laughs>